Thank you, Mary. Um, yeah, just a couple uh, family notes here as we get going. Um, um, uh, Melissa Johnson uh, has been part of our church family for a, a number of years now. Uh, her, her dad uh, had, had a heart attack maybe a, a couple months ago. Maybe some of you knew about that. Uh, he, he just recently had an, another uh, heart attack, and uh, it's, it's a pretty severe uh, situation. And so uh, pray for Melissa. They, they, her family lives uh, down in Lansing, and so you know, being far away, and I, I think she might be with them uh, right now. Um, but, but pray, pray for uh, Melissa and, and, and for her dad. And then some of you uh, heard the news uh, that uh, this, this past Monday, uh, some other uh, 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 members of our church family, uh, the Millwards, uh, Chris and Nikki Millward, our members here, Dan, uh, Chris's parents, uh, have, uh, they're moving up here and they've been attending as well. Uh, on Monday, uh, Chris Millward's sister, uh, Jennifer, was, uh, was killed in a car accident. Uh, heading from Traverse City back down to, to where she lives in Grand Rapids. Uh, and it's extremely tragic. She has eight children. Um, and, uh, and so there, there's a funeral this coming Saturday at 11 o'clock at Faith Reformed. And uh, we are, uh, there's the possibility of quite a large crowd. And so we are one of the churches uh, that has uh, thrown our name in to say, hey, in what ways can we help? Uh, are there any things that we can do? And right now, it seems like maybe providing some of the food uh, will be what we might be invited to do. So if you'll just keep your eyes open to uh, Sojourn emails, Sojourn Weekly, um, uh, we'd, uh, we'd love to have you help us care for uh, the Millward family uh, as they have lost a, 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 loved, a loved family member. Uh, and then I just do want to mention real quickly, community groups, uh, community groups are, we've invited our community groups to kind of treat uh, next week, uh, September 17th, treat that week as like a relaunch week. Um, and I, I would love for you to get plugged into one. Uh, there's a website, uh, SojournTravers.com, that's our church's website, and you can find uh, the community groups page on there. Uh, and each of the groups are listed. You can find out which ones have openings, and most of them have a couple openings, and you can uh, communicate directly with the community group leaders and uh, ask um, about the details of their group or uh, express your interest in uh, considering joining their group, th those kinds of things. So I want to encourage you to do that. And then are Greg and Julie Brinks in service? Um, no, they're one of the new groups. And Mitch and Heather? They're all getting good rest so that they're ready for their community group service. Um, but they, those are two of our two of our new groups. And uh, if, if I was just going to put a face uh, with those names, but um, take a look at the website, and there are opportunities to plug into to groups there. Uh, it's uh, uh, the lifeblood of our of our church. Uh, okay, so man, we have been out of the study of Matthew for a while, and uh, and today we 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 jump back in, and this is uh, titled the creative title of Matthew, part twenty. Um, and so we are making our way through the Gospel of Matthew, and since we've been out of it for a while, um, I want to um, uh, I, I want to just take a, a minute, maybe, and just kind of reorient us uh, to, to a little bit of, of where, where exactly we are uh, right now. So uh, at the end of July, we finished uh, the section that is um, uh, kind of considered the the the, the, the uh, prologue to the Sermon on the Mount. So the Sermon on the Mount is the, the Matthew chapter 5, 6, and 7, and it is this great, great sermon that Jesus preached that Matthew records for us. Uh, it has uh, informed uh, the Christian church for the last 2,000 years. It is so rich and full of so many things to consider and to chew on and, and to wrestle with. And Jesus uh, kind of uh, begins that sermon with something that we, uh, that, that, that we know as the Beatitudes. And if your Bible has subtitles, your Bible might 
might have that right there at the beginning of Matthew chapter five, the Beatitudes. And, and it's, it's almost like this uh, setting the table where Jesus identifies who he says it is that are flourishing. And so uh, we use the word, our, the translation I'm using uses the word blessed, uh, but maybe in our current moment, the better word would be flourishing. Flourishing are the poor in spirit. And it's like Jesus is identifying. It's like he's looking around and seeing individual people, and he's like, look, look over there. That, that's a flourishing person. They're, they're poor in spirit. Look, look over there. That, that, that's a, a flourishing person. They, they're hungering and thirsting for, for righteousness. And, and Jesus gives a list that maybe we wouldn't give, kind of some upside-down things there, where it's like the mourning, the, those who are mourning, they're, they're the flourishing people. And so we spent time trying to navigate what is it that Jesus is inviting us to see by declaring who it is that he says are the flourishing people. And it's kind of like setting the stage for this grand sermon uh, that he is about to preach. Um, and then he moves into this little discussion about salt and light. And interestingly, the Beatitudes are largely in third person. He, he's, he, in a sense, talking about they. And then he moves to second person, and he says, you. And you notice that in verse 11. Blessed are you when others revile you. And then in verses 13, 14, 15, 16, you are the salt of the earth. You are the light of the world. And so he moves into this second person. And it's almost like instead of looking out there and saying who's flourishing, now he's looking right into the eyes of his disciples. And he says, you, you guys, my, my followers, you. And then as we'll see in verse 17, he begins to use first person. And he goes to the pronoun I. And he starts to turn the attention um, to what, what he is doing and what he is, is saying. And so that we, we've gotten up through verse 16, the Beatitudes, uh, our call to be salt and light in the earth. And if you want to explore those more, uh, those were sermons in, I think, May, May June, July. Um, in, in, that, in that window of time, and those are all uh, on, on our website as well. But as we get to verse 17, we are starting the heart of the sermon. Uh, th this is now Jesus beginning to actually like m move into his, his teaching, m move into his, his instruction. It's like the heart of the sermon, and man, does Jesus set the bar. So what, what is this sermon? What, what is the sermon on the mount. Well, this will kind of frame it for us. Three, three quick thoughts. Jesus' sermon is not an impossible ideal to show you your need for grace. Now look, if you are a regular attender here, you know that one of our favorite things to talk about is the gospel. The gospel in its full color, in its full range. We believe that the message of the gospel is really good news, that it is good news to anyone who hears it. Uh, we love the phrase, all you need is need. And if you're a person who actually is willing to recognize that you can't solve your own problems, that the real problems of your life, that the real problems of the world are bigger than you, then boy, oh boy, is the gospel not good news. It is sure good news. And as Jesus talks in these Beatitudes in the beginning of the chapter, he says, all you need is need. Who's flourishing? The poor in spirit. The poor in spirit are flourishing. The mourning are flourishing. Je Jesus is looking around and saying, this is the posture that is ready to receive the good news about Jesus' rescue. That it really is good news. That Jesus has come and he has lived a perfect life and then he died as the perfect sacrifice in order to rescue humanity and the whole world back to God. It is 
such good news. The gospel also tells us there's no, there's no way to earn your salvation. That all the works that you could ever do, all the good deeds you could ever do, there is no way that you could ever earn it. Your resume will never be good enough. You need another resume. You need to do a resume swap. You need to swap your resume for Jesus' resume. And that's exactly what Jesus offers us. And he offers it freely by grace alone. And and the good news is that now Jesus stands in our place. It's Jesus' resume, not my resume. And God now looks at me, and the Bible says, if you've run to Jesus, when God sees you, he now sees you as Christ, clothed in Christ. And when he looks at you, he looks at you and he smiles. And he says, this is my beloved son. This is my beloved daughter. You've been washed. You've been forgiven. You've been welcomed in. That's how the God of heaven sees you if you've run to Jesus, not because of all of your good works, but because of Jesus's works on your behalf, not because of your resume, but because of Jesus's resume. And then the Bible goes on and says, because of this, there's, there's a life that you're now invited into. Yeah, there's actually the one who saved you. You can actually trust him and follow him. That, that's the invitation. But that message is scandalous. The message that the gospel is free. The message is that the gospel that you could never earn it. That message is a scandal. And yet it's changed the world. And we hold on to it and, and we love it. But because of the nature of that message, that it's Jesus' resume, not your resume, it's not your works, it's Jesus' works, because of that, there is a danger for gospel lovers like us to read the Sermon on the Mount and make it into just one big piece of evidence that we fail to obey God, but boy, are we glad Jesus did it for us. And so it says, you know, we're going to run into these passages about adultery and about your material goods. And you're going to look at those passages and be like, oh, man, I, I have failed. I have failed to do that. Well, sometimes there's a temptation to be like, oh, I failed to do it, but Jesus didn't fail to do it. So good. Everything's good. We're, we're all good. There's a truth there. There is a truth there, but you would be missing what Jesus means to be sharing with you throughout this sermon. This sermon certainly shows that we need Jesus. But it is not only for that purpose. It is the wisdom from the Father inviting us through faith to reorient our values, our vision, and our habits from the ways of external righteousness to wholeheartedness towards God. This is actually Jesus saying, if you've come running to me, this is the life that you're invited into. This is how you navigate. This is what you were designed for. This is how your heart should function. This is how you should live. And so, yes, Jesus performs perfectly. Jesus obeys God at every turn, and we fail to do it. That is true, and I am so thankful that Jesus is willing to swap resumes with me. But the message of the Sermon on the Mount is so negated if you think its only point is, you can't do it, but Jesus did. That's true. But Jesus is actually looking at his followers and saying, come here, follow me. Like, literally follow me. This is the good life. This is it. So the sermon is not an impossible ideal to just show you your need for grace. Secondly, Jesus' sermon is meant to be memorized. Man, it is meant to serve as as food for meditation. 
um, when I went to uh, the Holy Land, I got to go to the Holy Land a few years ago, and the, the, uh, the, 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 uh, the guides for that tour were actually in church last Sunday. And uh, one of them, his, his name's Bart, and uh, Bart Denbor memorized the Sermon on the Mount. And when we were sitting on the shore of Galilee, I didn't know that he knew it by heart, but we're sitting on the shore of, Gal- of, of the Sea of Galilee, and Bart stands up and recites the Sermon on the Mount. Matthew chapter 5, chapter 6, chapter 7, the whole thing. And you know, that, that's, that's, that's really what it's given for. It's meant to be like, th- th- this is the vision of the good life. And it should be, it should be uh, absorbed into our hearts and into our minds. Remember, the culture in which this was offered was an oral culture. They did not have access to written words like we do. Uh, they, they're, they're, um, the, the, the level of literacy, their literacy rates were way, way lower than ours. And Matthew, as he presents Jesus' sermon, he does it with thematic components that make it easier to memorize, vivid images, poetic languages, language. Uh, and, and the invitation is that the disciples of Jesus can hear it and hold on to it. But you got to spend time with it. You, you got to start letting these ideas marinate in your bones. And, 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 and I, I want to do that too. So one of the reasons why we are going through the Gospel of Matthew is because we wanted to spend time in the Sermon on the Mount. And so we're not rushing through it. And so over the course of this time, man, if, if, you're, if scripture memory is a thing that you do, or even if it's not something that you do, uh, maybe that's something to consider, is what would it look like to rehearse Matthew 5, 6, and 7 on a frequent basis, maybe on a daily basis, and start to let this vision that Jesus is offering of the good life, start to let it seep into your bones. And then the third thing is that Jesus' sermon is radical, but not entirely new. It's radical, but it's not entirely new. And I want to spend the rest of our time on on that idea, that it is radical, but it's not entirely new. Look again at the verses that that Mary read for us. Matthew chapter 5, verses 17 through 20. This is Jesus speaking, and he's going to the first person now. Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot will pass from the law until all is accomplished. So what's going on here? Well, it is widely agreed that the Jewish observers of Jesus were confused by the nature of Jesus' ministry. As they heard Jesus teach, Jesus is getting more and more public with his ministry. And as they hear him preach, they, they, they got, they've, they've got questions. You know, if they looked around and they saw the other religious leaders, like the scribes and the Pharisees, they, they knew that the religious leaders, the Jewish religious leaders, were committed to the Old Testament. They, they knew that they were committed to Torah. They knew that they, they loved the law and the prophets, that they had given their lives to, 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 to obey that, the, you know, all of it. They, they knew that. It was so clear. But it was not as clear with Jesus. He, he kept them guessing. They, they, they were saying things like this. What really is, you know, what is the relationship between Jesus' authority and Moses' authority? Because when they heard him teach, on the one hand, they always heard him referring to the Old Testament. They always heard him referring to Torah, to quoting these chunks of prophets or the Psalms or the, the, Old, the Old Testament. On the one hand, he's always referencing those things. But on the other hand, he's teaching them in ways that they haven't heard before. In Mark chapter 1, they actually say, who is this guy 
He teaches so well and with such authority that even the spirits obey him. And so they're trying to figure it out. They're like, he, he, he's, he's turning his attention to those, to those scriptures, and he teaches with incredible authority, so much so that the spirits listen to him. But this stuff doesn't, like, we never heard this before. Who, who's come up, who comes up with these kinds of things? And so they've got a lot of questions. And they, you know, a natural one would be, was Jesus blazing a new trail apart from the Old Testament? Was he just using the Old Testament to do something brand new? Well, Jesus right here in, in chapter 5, verses 17 and 18, he gives them a crystal clear answer. And the answer is no. No, I'm not doing something. I'm not blazing a trail, a new trail apart from the, the Old Testament. You see, Jesus is presented as a prophet of the Lord. And that would have resonated with the, with the Jewish audience. He, uh, Matthew is very intentional about presenting Jesus in this way to where he is declaring the word of the Lord. And much of what he has to say has continuity between him and the Old Testament. Uh, my, my, one of my professors uh, for this, this term, her name is uh, Dr. Ellen Davis, and, and she refers to this, this stained glass at uh, Chartres uh, Cathedral in France. And uh, we'll go ahead and zoom in on that. Uh, but this, some of you might know, this, this uh, stained glass window is Matthew on top of the shoulders of Isaiah. And so for, for a very long time, there has been a clear recognition that as Matthew is putting together his gospel, he is constantly referencing especially Isaiah, but also Jeremiah. And the teachings of Jesus are rooted in these Old Testament messages, in these Old Testament prophets. This is, this is not a, a new idea. Dr. Davis says, Matthew's understanding of discipleship grows directly out of his reading of Isaiah's scripture. You could look at Isaiah 61 and then compare it to the Sermon on the Mount. For Matthew, being the light of the world means reading scripture in the present moment of history together. So she's saying, as, as Matthew is, is putting these, these words on paper that Jesus spoke, he's recognizing that what's happening is scripture and our current moment are being considered at the exact same moment, listen to it, read by the light of Christ. That Old Testament scripture and the current cultural moment, that the light of Jesus shines upon it. And in Matthew chapter 4, he says there's a light that has dawned. Somebody's turned on the lights. And Matthew is still using the Old Testament. Jesus is still using the Old Testament, but the lights are on. And the source of, this is Dr. Davis again, that source of illumination is what distinguishes Jesus' reading of Torah and the prophets from that of the scribes and the Pharisees. When Jesus reads the prophets, he's reading the prophets in light of himself. And that makes all the difference. Jesus is inviting us to realize that we, in the first century, and that we here in the 21st century, are part of the same story that started back in Genesis. But Jesus has turned the lights way up. So Jesus is presented as a prophet of the Lord. Just as a quick side note, Jesus is also presented as a sage, in a sense as a, as a philosopher, uh, which resonated with the broader Greco-Roman audience. So as he's presented as a prophet, that gets the Jewish attention. As he's presented as a philosopher, that gets the Greco-Roman audience. And you say, how is he being presented as a philosopher? Jesus is giving a vision of the good life. 
Jesus is, is looking out at the people that are sitting in front of him, and he's saying, this sermon is a, it's a vision. It's, it's a vision of the good life. Every great teacher did this. They sat down and said, here's the good life. Jesus is sitting down and giving his vision of the good life. What is it for a human to truly flourish? So, as Jesus is presented as a prophet, in verses 17 and 18, he says that he came to fulfill the law. He didn't come to abolish it. He didn't just come to endorse it. Jesus did not just come to say, that's all right. Of the Old Testament, the prophets, the law, that's correct. Thumbs up. He didn't just come to endorse it, but he didn't come to get rid of it. He came to fulfill it. He came to, 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 to live it out. He came to put it on display. And the rest of the Sermon on the Mount is Jesus living out the realities of the law of God in real time before us, showing us what it looks like. And not only does he preach it in these few chapters, Jesus lives it. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, uh, the, the German theologian and pastor, he said, Christ has nothing to add to the commandments of God except this that he kept them. That's, that's what Jesus did. Jesus shows up and he says the law of God is good. In the Psalms, like Psalm 119, when, when David says, oh, how I love your law. I meditate on it day and night. Jesus is like, right on. It is so good. God's law is so good. And I'm here to affirm it and even more to fulfill it. Jesus transforms it, he maintains it, he completes it, but he is not abolishing it. He's not getting rid of it. He actually says in verse 18, until heaven and earth pass away, not one iota or not one dot, will, none of it's gonna pass away until it's all accomplished. Jesus says, this law is good. He really thinks that the law of God is for our good. What about verses 19 and 20? Because Jesus keeps going. He doesn't just say, I, I'm going to fulfill it. He doesn't say, every word's going to stay until it's accomplished. No, he goes on. And he says an important word at the beginning of verse 19. Therefore. Therefore. Because this is true. Because I've come to fulfill the law. Because the law of God is good. Now this. You see, he's showing an incredible connection, a vital connection between the law of God and the way we live in the kingdom of God. In God's kingdom, God's law is the standard because as this prophet and sage will show us, it's the truly good life. And so as Jesus stands before this group of people, this largely Jewish group of people, he looks at them and says, we're not getting rid of that. that that's actually a pitch for the good life. It's actually a vision of the good life. We're going to pursue it. And so since I'm here and I love God's law, therefore, whoever relaxes one of these, uh, one of the least of these commandments, and teaches others to do the same will be called the least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. That's quite the therefore. Jesus says, because of my view of the law, because of my affirmation of the law, guess what I want you to do? I want you to care about it. I want you to value it. I want you to hold to it. I want you to teach it. 
Jesus is saying that when we minimize God's law or ignore God's law, we simultaneously disregard God's authority and we are missing out on the good life. And both of those things are tragic. But Jesus doesn't stop there either. He drops the bomb. Verse 20 says, Unless your righteousness exceeds the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Whew. You will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Think who the scribes and the Pharisees were. There were 613 laws. And the scribes and the Pharisees were invested in keeping every one of them. And the people that Jesus is talking to are a whole bunch of working class people who probably struggled to keep the laws. They were fishermen and they were blue collar workers. They didn't have high levels of education. And they probably sat there and thought, whoa, 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 you're telling me that the best of the best aren't good enough? That unless my righteousness exceeds their righteousness, that there's no chance for the kingdom? We need to be more righteous? Boy, if that's the answer, we are in trouble. Jesus is saying that to enter the kingdom, we need a greater righteousness. What does he mean? Well, this righteousness that Jesus wants is a whole person righteousness. And that's what the rest of the sermon is going to put on display. It is a whole person righteousness. See, Jesus is talking about a greater righteousness in kind, not in degree. That's how John Stott puts it. He says the, the, the righteousness that Jesus is looking, looking for and talking about, it's not, it's not a pile. It's not saying they have this big of a pile, you need this big of a pile. It's not in degree, it's in kind. It's a different kind of righteousness. It's a righteousness that includes the whole person. And Matthew is captivated by this righteousness. 20 times in Matthew's gospel, he refers to righteousness, way more than any of the other gospel writers. The, the, the righteous person is the whole person. If you have your Bibles open, just turn over to Matthew chapter 5 and look at verse 48. It's the end of the, end of the chapter. This is what Jesus says. You there, therefore must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. You, it feels like game, set, match. Who, who can be perfect? That, 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 there's no competition. That, it's, it's over. We, we lose. It, the game over. The problem is this, that the word perfect probably really is not the best translation of that. The, the, the better translation of that Greek word is really whole. Be whole. Be, be, be a whole person. Now that still is intimidating, but it fits with the image and the message of the Sermon on the Mount where Jesus is saying, I want every square inch of you. I want every bit of you. I want all of you. See, Jesus says that true righteousness is whole person. Someone who does the will of God externally with their actions, yeah, and the scribes and the Pharisees were good at that. But they also do the will of God internally from the heart. Jesus is not diminishing one or the other, but he is suggesting an order that fundamentally what Jesus wants to do is infiltrate your heart. 
He actually wants to pierce your heart. And if you don't let Jesus go that deep, then it'll never produce whole person righteousness. Jesus wants all of you. He wants every inch of you. He doesn't just want your good deeds. He doesn't just want your financial contributions. And this is not a horizontal competition between you and the scribes and the Pharisees or you and the other Christians in your community group. It's not a horizontal competition. It's not degree. It's kind. It's a different kind of righteousness. It's a righteousness that goes way deeper than the righteousness that the scribes and the Pharisees tend to pursue. Jesus wants your heart. He wants your life. And then... This is the beauty of the gospel, that the good deeds that flow out of that heart are the fruit of righteousness that Jesus' people should be producing in droves. And this is, this is the hallmark of true Christianity, that when, 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 for those people who let Jesus all the way in, who actually wave the white flag and sacrifice the, the, and, and re- submit themselves to Jesus, and they let Jesus all the way in. You let him all, let tear you down all the way to the studs. When that happens, then he remakes you. He brings you to life. And when you come to life, guess what starts to happen? You start to produce fruit. The Spirit of God makes you alive, and then you start to begin to uh, produce the fruit of the Spirit. And that fruit begins to billow out of you. And then you get to look at that fruit, and you recognize some, something's going on here. Something's happening in me. There's life in here. As Paul says in Romans 6 and 7, the things that I want to do, I don't end up doing them. The things that I don't want to do are the things that I end up doing. I have this incredible conflict on the inside. But guess what Paul's conclusion is? Do you know who the real Paul is? Which one's the real Paul? The one that wants to do the bad stuff or the one that wants to do the good stuff? Paul's conclusion is the real me in Christ, the real me is the one that wants to do the good stuff. That, that's the real me. Something's going on on the inside that's changed my desires. And there's conflict and there's struggle and there's wrestle. That's the condition of this world. But the real Paul has been changed. And when the Spirit of God pierces your heart and makes you new, the fruit of righteousness begins to flow out of our life. Now look, I don't want to let us off the hook. I don't want to let us off the hook. I said at the beginning, there is such a temptation for us to be like, okay, we stink at that, but Jesus did it, so we're, we're okay. Listen, there's a sense in which that's true, but Jesus is actually calling for whole life righteousness. Listen, if you consider yourself a follower of Jesus, it is an important question to ask yourself, what is the evidence of greater righteousness in your life. The scribes and the Pharisees had a pile. They had a list of things that they did. And Jesus says, it's going to have to be more than that. That's all external. It's like a tree that is stapling on apples. Jesus says, you need roots that actually produce apples. It's got to be deeper than that. It can't be external. It can't just be this pile of good deeds. It has to be a heart that's been made new. What is the evidence of greater righteousness in your life? Dr. Davis says, too many Western Christians are now more comfortable with the Sermon on the Mount 
than Jesus or Matthew would have ever wanted. We read these words and we're like, yeah, I've heard that. Yeah, I know that. Yeah, I know. I know. I know. Probably shouldn't do that. I, I, know, I know that's not what Jesus wants. And there's this casualness. There's this looseness. There's this uh, familiarity that is, it can be deadly. The Sermon on the Mount is aiming to unsettle religious expectations, to destroy religious resume building, to disrupt the social norms of power through submission to the lordship, to the kingship of Jesus. Does this sermon unsettle you? Do the words of Jesus in Matthew 5, 17 through 20, do they unsettle you? Yeah, we are our least accurate critics. We, 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 we lie to ourselves. We, we, we see ourselves so much better than we actually are. Jesus is asking some hard questions here. Does it unsettle you? If it doesn't, then maybe you are less like Jesus' followers and more like the crowd who's listening in but not committed to following. You know, Francis Chan, this is not a direct quote, but Francis Chan was a pastor in California and he's kind of gone on and done, done some other things. And, and, and part of the reason why, uh, he's, he's done some very creative things, uh, and, and part of the reason why Francis Chan, he was the pastor of a mega church that was growing like crazy, and he, he resigned. And, and part of what Francis Chan said was this. When I read the Bible, and I'm asking the question of like, what would following Jesus look like? He says, I don't see it looking anything like what it looks like in the average church in America. It doesn't look like that at all. He's like, I read the book of Acts and like they're together every day. They're sharing their possessions. They're, they're like literally changing their priorities. You know, th th this idea that, they, like, th that culture was very stingy with their money and very loose with their bodies. And now these followers of Jesus are now stingy with their bodies and loose with their money. Like th th those kinds of changes were happening in the people of God. And, and Francis Chan is like, Something's not right in the Western church. S something's not working. These Sunday morning performances where we just try to get a bunch of people in one room at, at, on, on, you know, at a service at 10 o'clock, it, it's, it's not working. And I, I hope you feel those tensions because I feel those tensions. And a lot of people have said, oh, you know, pastors are asking these questions because COVID, you know, COVID got them all riled up and they're, you know, they, they don't know what to do post-COVID. You know, maybe but honestly, I think the much better answer is that COVID helped us see. COVID sped, you know, it, it kind of fast forwarded some of the trends. And it should make us ask harder questions about who we are in Jesus, about what following Jesus looks like. Now, I know we're tight on time, but I, I, I learned about a, a little community. It's called Bruderhof. Uh, it started in Germany. I know that's shocking by that name. Um, but it started in Germany about 100 years ago. And, and there, there are some similarities to, to uh, if, if you're familiar with the Amish community. Bruderhof communities have, have some similarities there. And, and they're from the Anabaptist, you know, they have Anabaptist origins. And, and so, you know, whatever. They, 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 this is what they said. They, they are marked by a deep commitment to the Sermon on the Mount, including nonviolence, and the description of the early church in Acts 2. This is from their website. We are convinced that a life in church community is the best way to live out Jesus' teachings in the Sermon on the Mount. They literally share all of their possessions. 
No one owns any single thing. They all work jobs and their money is pooled to cover food, clothing, and housing. And you say, gosh, well, that's awfully intense. Are there any options in between what I'm doing now and that? Yeah, yeah, there's a, there's a lot of options. I, I agree that this sounds intense, but, but li- listen to their FAQ, their Frequently Asked Questions section. They address this question. Can anyone become a member of Bruderhof? Th- this is their answer. Anyone who is willing to give up everything to follow Jesus is warmly welcome to seek with us. Jesus called his disciples to leave everything to follow him, and we believe that we can only truly start being disciples by doing the same. I quoted this a few weeks ago, but there's a guy named John Dixon, and he teaches a class at, at, at uh, Wheaton College on church history. And he says, when I look back at early church history, and I like back, back, back during the Crusades, for example, a thousand years ago, he says, I look and I see the violence that Christians were involved in. And, and a lot of us do. You know, we look back and we see that violence and we're just like, what? They, they did what to those people? That, that's so terrible. Are they even Christians? Are they even Christians? And John Dixon says, man, I get it because I asked those exact same questions. He's like, but do you want know haunts me? If Christians from a thousand years ago could look in on us and they could see the way that we live with our individualism, the way that we live with our materialism, would they look and say, that is so gaudy. They have piles of money while people don't have food. They live their lives completely isolated and they spend time two or three hours a week with other people. Are they even Christians? And John Dixon says, I lose sleep over that. I wrestle with that, and it's helpful to have other generations and, and, uh, to, to look at us and to ask the questions of, like, are you faithfully following Jesus? Now, I'm not suggesting that you should be, you know, go join Bruderhof, but I am saying that this should unsettle you. And as we go through the Sermon on the Mount, it should unsettle me. It should unsettle us. It should cause us to ask the questions of, like, if I've really let Jesus have me all the way down, if I've really actually recognized him as king of my life, shouldn't that alter things? Shouldn't my life look a little bit different than my neighbor who's not a follower of Jesus? It should unsettle us. Jesus is calling you to let, you ha- let him have you all the way down. And when you give yourself to him like that, wholly, fully, then he promises to bring us, bring our hearts to life in a way that transforms everything. That's, that's the promise of the gospel. Our deeds matter, but Jesus wants them to flow from a heart that's actually been made alive. And he offers it. He offers it through himself. We end our services with the table, the bread and the cup. The bread represents the body of Christ broken for us. The cup represents the blood of Christ spilled for us. And Jesus went to the cross to do this so that we could be made alive, so that we could be rescued back to the Father, so that that very fruit of the Spirit could be produced in us. And so I invite you to come and take this bread and take this cup. And as you come to ask the questions, God, would you show me myself? Would you help me to see what parts of my life I actually haven't turned over to you? What parts of my life do I want to still control? Have I really let you have me all the way down? If our servers will please come, let's pray. God, thank you for this this text and this, this, uh, these words from Jesus that he has come to fulfill the law.
that none of it's passing away, not until it's all accomplished, that it's actually given to us for our good, that it's actually designed for the good life, that we're invited into it, not to earn anything, but to actually experience life as you've designed. God, would would you help us? Would you help us to, to not minimize it, to not ignore it, to not downplay it, to not let familiarity steal it from us? but instead to actually come open-handed, actually have the audacity to say, what might, what might my life, what, what, what should it look like? What, what should be different? What should be going on here if I'm all in with you? God, that's a question that, that weighs heavy on my shoulders, especially at this moment in my life. God, I, 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 I pray that you'd, you'd meet us here. We need your help. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.